Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Goodness Me, Australia's fastest growing online store for all your healthy pantry and snack essentials made with real ingredients, absolutely no nasties and delivered straight to your door. Head to goodnessme.com.au and use my code Leanne, that's L-E-A-N-N-E for 15% off. Welcome back to another episode on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Today we are chatting about nutrition for perimenopause and menopause with our special guest who's returning to the podcast after such rave reviews, Angelique Clark. Angie is an advanced sports dietitian, performance nutritionist and exercise physiologist. Over the last 15 years, Angie's worked extensively with elite female figure and fitness athletes, as well as fitness centers and celebrities for transformational campaigns. She has a passion for understanding the difference in female physiology, honoring women's health and uncomplicating nutrition for sustainable results. On today's episode, we discuss what is perimenopause and menopause. We chat through the symptoms that people may experience, how nutrition can help or hinder us during this time, how to deal with hot flushes, excessive bleeding, weight gain, and the increase in belly fat. We also chat about the nutrients we need more or less of and general exercise recommendations for ladies heading into menopause. Share this episode with your mums, sisters, friends, wives, or even colleagues, because it will help so many ladies understand their bodies and hormones. So let's dive into today's juicy content in this week's episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Angie. We are so excited to have you back on today. Thanks so much for having me back. So today's topic is all about perimenopause and menopause, which is, it's such an important topic. So tell our listeners, how did you get interested in these areas of menopause and perimenopause? Yeah, like it's been a bit of a journey, but I have to say now, so I'm an advanced sports dietitian and I have a private practice called Angelique Clark Nutritionist Saw, but previous to that, I was an exercise physiologist. And In both of those roles, whether I was talking about nutrition or exercise, obviously I've been working with women for well over 15 years now. And it wasn't until probably 2019 where I really tried to specialize a little bit more in the active woman who was over 35. And really what I'm looking at there is a couple of the things that they would mention to me in clinic, a couple of things that I saw in myself now that I am 38. Um, And, you know, we often don't think that perimenopause and menopause affects us until we're in our 40s, mid 40s or mid 50s, right? Um, But a lot of these types of symptoms that people were coming in and explaining to me, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. And I just started to search for a few of those answers. And unfortunately, um, as we know, in terms of the literature, not a lot of research has been put into active perimenopausal and menopausal women. It's been done with a lot of sedentary women. And I just think we are so different given that our lifestyles are a little bit different and that it doesn't necessarily just apply to the mid 40s and 50s. We kind of need to be starting to think about this sort of stuff in our mid 
there it is. Yeah, lots of things to think about. And I'm sort of, I would say I'm in my mid-30s, so I'm really excited about our chat today. But I probably should mention for our listeners, Angie and I did a previous podcast um, on all about period nutrition. So if you haven't gone back and listened to that, we gave Angie a really great intro on that podcast, talked all about what we're doing and how we eat for our period and how to work with our bodies, not against them. Um, and then we thought we'd talk more towards um, you know, the symptoms of menopause and perimenopause because it's something that we both get asked a lot of questions about. So Angie, I guess let's start with the basics. What exactly is perimenopause? Yeah. Okay. So perimenopause really describes the years leading up to a woman's final menstrual cycle. So as we age, our ovaries gradually start producing less and less estrogen and progesterone. Um, And so during this phase, the hormones, estrogen and progesterone decline, but they decline pretty much between the ages of 35 to 50. So we start to see this reduction in estrogen, which is about a 35% reduction and then a 75% reduction in progesterone over the same type of period. So it's really looking at, as perimenopause describes, the time frame which roundabout starts around 40 or mid 40s, but it could last anywhere between five to 10 years, right? So we know that everybody is individual. So this might actually be a really long period and a significant time in your life to be experiencing what we would call perimenopause until we finally hit menopause. So a lot of people describe this because of that reduction in our sex hormones, but unfortunately it's not a linear reduction. It's a really quite a, what we term a roller coaster reduction. So sometimes it's going to be high and low relative to what's happening with both those sex hormones. And so there's an unpredictability of what's happening within our physique and within our bodies that over that course of time. And this is where a lot of women report quite common subjective symptoms as it relates to perimenopause, because there's really no defining way of understanding clinically whether we're actually in perimenopause. It kind of just is a feel for like what the woman is saying to their practitioner or what they're describing in relation to their symptoms. So yeah, it's a really tricky time. I do call it the roller coaster shit show because <laughs> we don't know when these signs and symptoms will arrive and we don't know when they're going to stop and when they're going to go. But progressively, it's obviously on the way to menopause itself. Wonderful. And you did mention like, so I guess it's hard to know if we're sort of experiencing perimenopause. Is the only way to know once we hit menopause and we sort of look back and go, oh, that's what that was for the last X amount of years. Like, is that the only way to know? Yeah, it's quite a tricky time. But I guess what what we would probably say is that if you're around mid-40s, so it's an age-related thing. So it's definitely, obviously, if you're a woman, because it just specifically applies to women, um, if you're a woman around the age of mid to like early to mid-40s, and then you report the symptoms of perimenopause. So we can go through a few of these because I think if you have been or if you are in that stage of your life, you will most definitely probably report this. Now, we know that everybody is individual, so some people might coast really quite easily through perimenopause, so the time just before menopause, and then some people will just struggle immensely. And as I said, it's because of that roller coaster or fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone as they go through their decline until they flatline when we hit menopause. So these are the sorts of things that women experience. So definitely first and foremost is hot flushes. I think our temperature is definitely being challenged somewhat with the reduction in our hormones. We might experience things such as night sweats um, and hot flushes just in general might come at different times of the day. So there's no specific time of the day, but often women will report like overnight they need to like 
get the fan on, rip the blankets off in the middle of winter, um, you know, and they're really profusely sweating. So they're waking up really quite hot and their clothes are really quite wet with sweat. So it's quite profound. Um, and of course, that does then affect our sleep. So we find a lot of women report a lot of sleep disturbances, um, a lot of insomnia around that. And that relates to uh, particularly things around brain fog, mental health, mood, anxiety, depression, very, very common reported symptoms. Um, and this is has a link definitely in things such as progesterone. So when we start to reduce progesterone, our body then starts to have effect. You know, I think it's different. It's not just our reproduction that is affected in terms of our reproductive hormones. They have influences on so many systemic parts of our body that we start to then go, oh, we didn't realize that there was an association with a reduction in estrogen and progesterone. And as it relates to our anxiety or possibly some mood swings that we might be experiencing, um, irritability comes to mind as well. A lot of women report that. And then, of course, changes to menstrual bleeding patterns. So that is a really big sign. So if you think that you might be in perimenopause and you are noticing that, yes, you have some signs and symptoms, but you are of the age and then, of course, you're starting to see a little bit of a change in your menstrual cycle. So this might be either a shorter or a longer duration um, between your periods and then, of course, maybe some heavier bleeding possibly um, and then a prolonged bleed time as well. And then there's a couple of other things which might not be specific, but I think it's nice and important to mention, but uh, women do report a little bit of a vaginal dryness and then painful intercourse as well. So that could be another thing that's obviously at play. And then the big one, which most uh, women really struggle with, and this is also a psychological thing, but definitely has a physiological component, is the midsection belly fat gain, the definitely the unwanted menopause belly. And that's just, you know, looking at an increase in that visceral abdominal tissue around the midsection. So yeah, definitely profound. And I know it seems like it's all doom and gloom and absolutely horrible, uh, but we have to obviously remember that not everyone will experience this and it just depends on what your lifestyle factors are. Maybe what your mum has gone through as well might give you an indication of what you're likely to go through, but it's just kind of knowing and being aware that at this certain time in our life, things might be a little bit different and we might have a reason for that and that might be termed perimenopause. Mm, and I love that you mentioned um you know, it might be what your mom experienced might be sort of something similar to you. And that's never a question I've ever thought to ask my mom. And I was actually listening on a podcast um, and it was by a great women's health physio, I think. And she was talking about menopause and perimenopause. And she's like, the best thing you can do is have a conversation with your mom and be like, hey, mom, what happened to you? What did you experience? When did this happen to you? Um, because I think genetics, it does play a large role in, in this, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and like I said, like the lifestyle factors around that are particularly important as well. So if we think about there's a physiological component, there's a biological component, this is a natural way of our bodies as we go through the aging process. So it is inevitable. And so our, our mothers and, and the people before us, or maybe the other elder women in our family, if you don't have a mum that you can directly talk to, it's definitely a lovely conversation to open up because even just listening to another woman's experience that has been before you is so valuable, whether they are in a relationship type of sense or whether they're part of your family or your immediate or extended family or even just um, a woman in general. It's just really lovely to hear that we don't need to suffer in silence. And I think for a lot of women, um, they tend not to report their symptoms and so terrible and detrimental to women's psychology. But I hear a lot of people coming into my clinic and they've just been completely dismissed by their 
medical professional or practitioner and they're just like, oh, you're just going through perimenopause, just kind of deal with it. And we absolutely know that there's some definite things that we can use um, within our lifestyle, within our nutrition and exercise to help manage those symptoms as best as we can. So yeah, having an understanding of it, opening up the conversation and just finding out some things that we can do and that we have control over whilst we not, might not be able to control aging, we can definitely help to manage those symptoms with some really cool nutrition and exercise advice. Absolutely. All about that empowerment. Hey, like the more you know, the more you can do, which is why I'm so excited to have you on talking about such an important topic. Because I remember when I had, we um, generally pop over, me and my siblings to my um, my mum, my parents' house um, sort of once a week, once a fortnight for dinner. And mum mum loves cooking. You know, she's Malaysian by background, so she loves cooking. And I popped in one day and I was like, hey mom, tell me about your menopause journey. And she was like, what? I'm making fried rice. <laughs> No, no, wow. I really want to learn about menopause. <laughs> and so she was quite taken back because she's like, but why? And I was like, I just, I want to understand your experience. I want to understand what happened. And of course, me being pregnant, we've talked about her pregnancy journey. So I thought that was sort of like the next natural progression. And she's like, really, you want to know? So I do think it's a beautiful conversation between either your mum or as you mentioned, some of the other elderly women in our family to have, because it's right. Like it's just something that's not really talked about, is it? And I think, and even as you said, a lot of our medical practitioners can kind of brush it under the rug and being like, oh, this is happening, but no worries. Like, you know, kind of suck it up. You'll be okay. Um, so I love that we're having this really empowering conversation today about the things that we, you know, we can do to make it just that little bit easier on ourselves as females. A hundred percent. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that, you know, you're talking to your mom now being in your thirties about this type of stuff. And whilst you are pregnant, obviously that's a whole different hormonal change pattern for, for female bodies as well, which is epic that we can actually have the superpower to do that. Um, But, you know, our hormones and our reproductive hormones go through massive changes as we go through age and having this discussion in the 30s, I think is so valuable. And just because you are in your mid-30s and you haven't hit perimenopause or menopause yet doesn't mean that you can't be aware of what's coming and what's ahead. And that's actually a big driving factor of my own research into this because I'm 38 now. So I want to know what's coming. I want to know what's around the corner. And I just got to the point where, like I said, in the intro, I was just sitting and listening to women, just, you know, complaining of all these types of things. And I just wanted to help them. I genuinely just wanted to figure out how it was that our nutrition and exercise could help them get through this time of their lives. And lo and behold, we have had an explosion of research as it relates to the active perimenopausal and menopausal female come out over the last few years. And I think it's really starting to direct our nutrition interventions a lot more and our exercise interventions a lot more in relation to the advice that we're giving women. So we are now starting to get a little bit more specific. We know that women aren't small men. We know that a lot of the research was done in men and unfortunately the active population got a little bit of a miss out on that. So yeah, it's different and I think we need to be aware and just start opening our minds to what we can do right now. Yeah, it's an exciting time. So let's dive into some of that, some of that research, And So how can nutrition either help or hinder us when it comes to perimenopause? Our nutrition can be our savior. So we can't control what's happening hormonally. We know that our, our hormones are going to decline, but once we take ownership of our nutrition and we can start to become really more strategic about how we help our bodies transition, then I think we tackle or we tend to enter perimenopause and menopause in a lot better position. So the first things I'm going to talk to are basically all those symptoms and signs that we have mentioned in terms of what women experience going through perimenopause. And I'm, I'm going to talk to each of those points in relation to what we can do nutritionally and how to, to mitigate that just a little bit. So the first things 
that we want to talk about is just the heat or the temperature changes. So obviously we understand that if you're going to be hotter, um, your core temperature is elevated, you're likely then as a result of that to sweat more. So that's how our bodies cool our systems down. Obviously in relation to that, it uses electrolytes to get that and push that water to the surface, in which case then we want to be having a lot of convection. So a lot of things such as fans, cooler environments, and really taking note of the environments that we're in, but also what we're wearing typically as well. So we can take a few layers off if that's possible. Um, We can't necessarily stop the hot flushes from coming however we can actually then try to manage them as best as we can and obviously going into cooler environments making sure we're having fluid that's always around in terms of focusing on our hydration to replenish the water that we've lost but keeping that water really cool so you know having icy cold drinks on hand or putting your water bottle in the fridge so it's cold when you're drinking it um there's some pretty cool stuff that we do in sports nutrition with the use of menthol so menthol if you think about um anything that tastes minty or pepperminty so something like a mentos or a sugar-free gum like a spearmint gum um, if we are eating those types of things it actually can help cool our system and our body so it sends a neurological drive to our brain and um, when when we breathe in, we feel a lot cooler. And if you think about it, when's the last time you had gum or like spearmint gum and a Mentos and you breath, breathed in and you're like, oh, it's like this Arctic freeze breath that comes in. Mm. So that might actually help, which is a pretty <laughs> cool thing to do. And yeah, just like, like I said, in terms of electrolytes. So if you're using a lot of electrolytes or if you're sweating a lot, particularly if you're active, I think, um, and if you're active in outdoor conditions that are in hotter environments, we really need to be focusing on getting a bit more electrolytes into your hydration. So these are things that could typically be found in something like a hydrolyte, an effervescent tablet. A lot of the sport products have that out there or really just simply adding a little bit of sodium or salt to our meals and having fluid with our meals is going to really help to retain that water if we're losing quite a lot of it over time. So that's probably the first thing I would say in relation to heat and temperature changes. Um, There's also a couple of things in relation to hot flushes. So the use of eating things such as lignans, which are found in flaxseed and also phytoestrogen foods such as soy and soy products in their whole form create what we call basically a small or a weak estrogenic effect. Um, And that could actually be reported to help reduce the frequency and the severity of the hot flushes. And we've looked at these in terms of studies of women that have a lot of these types of things in their diet, namely the Asian types of cultures who house a lot of tofu, edamame, soybean, tempeh, these types of foods, they often report less hot flushes over the course of that time frame. So yeah, doing those types of little things might actually help mitigate these, these severity of those hot flushes as well. Amazing. Some really, really practical tips. Yeah. And then, like, so I'm talking about things that we can put in, but what about the things that we need to maybe minimize as well? So, mm-hmm. if we think about the stuff that drives our core temperature, such as alcohol and caffeine. So, I know these two things, particularly in terms of beverages, are the beverages that most women really love to engage in. And of course, as we hit our 40s and our 50s, they become probably bigger parts of our lifestyle from a social event and function. So, a lot of these could actually, well, number one, we know caffeine is a dehydrator. So, we don't want to be doing that if we are looking at improving our hydration but then also alcohol so alcohol is something that is even more of a dehydrating agent um and of course we know that to be because that's the effect of what a hangover is so (laughs) we are dehydrated if we are hungover and obviously that's the consumption of having lots of alcohol and things like spicy foods as well so all of these sort of raise our core temperature and then of course dehydrate us as well so it's even been touted that even a light to moderate alcohol consumption can actually increase blood concentrations of estrogen and then the byproducts of estrogen metabolism as well which can also increase the symptom risk so we have to remember what happens as the decline of estrogen and progesterone is happening 
progesterone drops at a faster rate than estrogen does. So what happens is it's relative to actually having a higher estrogen amount until we hit menopause. So when our bodies have an excess of estrogen, this is actually what we term the reason or we think, we don't know exactly, but we think that it's the reason a lot of these symptoms around perimenopause occur. So if we can try and mitigate that somewhat by doing these types of nutritional interventions and factors, then we're definitely going to be experiencing less frequency. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I love it. And I also read, I was reading a little bit of um, some research and studies the other day around a Mediterranean diet and hot flushes. Have you read a little bit of that research. I know it's more sort of probably emerging research, but we both love the Mediterranean style diet. I mean, I think it's a really helpful pattern or style of eating for a lot of people to be following. But do have you seen links in that in terms of helping to reduce hot flushes as well? Would that be something that you'd recommend for your clients? A hundred percent. And Leanne, you and I both know we absolutely love all the benefits that are associated with a, a modern Mediterranean diet um, and as it relates to gut health. So I think in particular, this is so important for women at this time of their lives to be considering. So the more we can add in terms of fibrous and cruciferous or the brassica family of vegetables is very important for helping rid that excess estrogen. So a lot of the Mediterranean diet principles are founded in having a higher consumption of plant-based foods and by which we also want to be looking at higher plant proteins as well. And that particularly contains things such as soybeans, like we mentioned, but also legumes and pulses, having that in our diet and then replacing a lot of the animal-based meats or proteins that we are consuming. And that's really interesting because as we go through perimenopause and menopause itself, our smooth muscle of our gut actually starts to decline in terms of function. So we find that the transit time in our gut is actually a lot longer and we don't want to be having a lot of these um, high red meat consumption or animal-based proteins in our diet if it's going to take a lot longer to get through our digestive tract. So we need to counterbalance that a little bit more by having things such as oily fish, which of course contains omega-3s. And now omega-3 fatty acids are so bloody amazing when it comes to brain and pain. So brain function, we often report a lot of cognitive brain fog and decline when we hit perimenopause and menopausal years. And I think for a lot of women that could definitely help from a brain perspective to increase our cognition. Um, And then of course, what we also experience is pain and inflammation. So as estrogen starts to decline, we often get a heightened response to pain and inflammation. Um, And omega-3s help to come in as a natural anti-inflammatory to come in and really calm that inflammation down. So omega-3s are present in, once again, our oily fish, uh, but also things like nuts and seeds and avocados, really good unsaturated fatty acids, particularly looking at flax seeds, which we just mentioned before about having lignans, which is fantastic. Chia seeds and walnuts are really wonderful plants plant-based sources of omega-3s as well. So yeah, definitely the higher fiber carbohydrates and then focusing a little bit more on going, okay, can we still have grains in our diet, but are they the really minimally processed grains? They're the whole grains, the whole fibers that we can get from the entire grain itself. And having the diversity of that is really important to increase our microbiome diversity as well. And I know in the past, you've had so many experts talk about gut health. So I'm not going to harp on about that, but just know that it's definitely something that um, perimenopausal and menopausal women do need to start including into their diet. And having a look at that, if we look at 
the whole idea, maybe not the red wine consumption (laughs) with the Mediterranean diet, but of course everything is in moderation. And I think talking to that, if we're looking at the benefits of having red colored fruits in our diet, not necessarily grapes and fermented grapes in (laughs) relation to alcohol, but something such as tart cherry concentrate uh, is really interesting. So this is actually what we've used quite a lot in sports specific populations. Like I said, we're talking to active women going through perimenopause, but tart cherry juice concentrate which is from the momentary cherries so the sour cherries in a concentrated form actually helps to increase melatonin so having this prior to bed might actually help our sleep and might actually help as well with temperature regulation so it gives us a a calmer better sleep overnight as well so yeah some really really cool things and like I said if we looked at the Mediterranean diet on a whole Great, colourful fruit, veggies, beautiful whole grains, less red meat consumption, more a focus on the fish, alcohol definitely in moderation and a focus on uh, red wine in particular. But, of course, we know that the alcohol risk is associated with higher estrogen and we want to minimise the risk of breast cancer long term because that is a pretty important link when we're looking at excess estrogen and then the increase in terms of risk of getting breast cancer. So, yeah, definitely some positives and a Mediterranean diet has my absolute heart. It's definitely something that we can all be doing. And I love that you mentioned the link between breast cancer because I get asked a lot of people saying, should I be having, you know, soy milk and tofu? I thought soy was bad for the links in terms of cancer. So it's very protective and the research shows this in terms of those breast cancers as well. So I'm really happy you brought them out. And tart cherries, and look, I've been eating these tart cherries. I mean, pregnancy, not <laughs> sleeping that well, wake up with like hot sweats during the night. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try these tart cherries. So I've been munching on these little bad boys. Um, during the day, they hit my sweet fix. Um, they're just delicious. And yeah, if I have them at nighttime instead of, you know, a little bit of chocolate, which, you know, has a little bit of caffeine, which a lot of people go towards after dinner, I've swapped my little bit of chocolate after dinner for a little bit of tart cherries. And I must say, I, you know, sleeping maybe a little bit better. Maybe that's just, you know, N equals one study, but I'm really a bad as well. So I'm glad that there's some benefit in terms of perimenopause and menopause as well. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and dark chocolate's not a bad thing. You know, we're looking at 70%. Yes, it might contain a little bit of extra caffeine, but we're looking at those polyphenols from the actual cocoa itself and looking at it just being something that houses antioxidants as well. So having that coupled with the tart cherries is actually a fantastic little nightcap. I think you've done well doing that. And then in the replace of that, obviously then minimizing the lots of high sugar foods that we probably would get maybe with, you know, something like a dairy milk chocolate. So obviously dairy milk, the less cocoa we have in that, the more sugar content, the more milk solids. So you can try and replace the dairy milk, reduce the sugar, which of course then increases our core temperature and doesn't do too well for our sleep as well. So we want to make sure that our temperature is in that really beautiful position to then dip into deep REM sleep as well. So yeah, a lot of things that we can be done. Um, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. What a great combination. Go and try that everyone. <laughs> Guys, delicious. Can't recommend it enough. I'm just going to bring you back quickly, Ange, to when we were talking about caffeine and alcohol, because I know a lot of people are like, oh man, but Tell us, is one coffee a day okay in perimenopause, even if we are experiencing things like hot flushes? Um, can we have one coffee a day? Can that be our saving grace? I know a lot of my listeners love their caffeine. And if, you know, they might sort of have heard that messaging and think, oh God, can I have any? Obviously there's going to be a limit where, you know, two, three, four, five might be too many, but can we have our one standard cup of coffee or maybe one glass of wine once or twice a week? Is that okay? 
Absolutely. And I think everything has to be considered in terms of a lifestyle factor. So when we're doing all these sorts of wonderful things, and of course we have room for flexibility um, on an individual level. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with caffeine and coffee. In fact, I absolutely love it. We also tout it as an ergogenic aid. It helps bring that mental alertness and that stimulation to the forefront, which might obviously help with brain fog. It just might mean that, you know, you're having maybe an iced long black instead of a, a hot cup of coffee. So that might be helpful in relation to reducing the hot flushes but then you know from a gastric perspective I think it could be a gastric irritant for some people they love their caffeine because it helps them go to the toilet and keep regular Um, but we have to remember as well as we age so we mentioned about smooth muscle and digestion in terms of that being affected but also our digestive enzymes um, and our stomach acid starts to reduce so we're not processing that as effectively so maybe cutting back a little bit as you suggested Leanne to stick to maybe one or two cups of coffee a day might be beneficial and just see how it relates to an improvement in your symptoms. I think the other thing that I find a lot of the time is the crash from caffeine becomes really hard for women in that sort of early afternoon. So sometimes, you know, we know caffeine has a six hour half-life. So when we have coffee in the morning, we hit a lull around six hours after we've consumed that. So if you're finding that you're constantly then relying on caffeine to pick you back up again, maybe we need to look at some other more nutritious foods and maybe higher protein uh, within our diet to help keep us a little bit more satiated. So we don't get that really low slump and then look for really high sugary foods in relation to that um, to counteract that sort of tiredness and that decline. So overall, we we assume that there's around about a 200 milligram cap in terms of caffeine per day that is safe for us to consume at this moment in time, um, any more than that. And just there is might be a tipping point to being that you can't fall asleep because you're too alert. So just be mindful. It's all about having that individual variants and um in relation to alcohol look yes there's no um we actually don't know what the safe amount in terms of consumption would be my advice is always if you aren't drinking right now as an advanced sports dietitian i wouldn't recommend that you start um so at least that gives you some element of guidepost but of course you know less is always best when it comes to these types of things and then drinking in moderation but i think the biggest point is to actually know what your serve is and to be able to quantify how many standard drinks that you have per week just to be accountable to that and just to be very much aware of it. And I would say typically a standard glass of wine is 125 to 150 mils. So you might just want to measure that out a little bit the next time that you have one. Particularly if you're at one of those nicer restaurants where they're quite generous and that, you know, they pour well over that standard line and you think, oh my, I've got to drive home. (laughs) Sometimes the more generous restaurants aren't always the best ones, guys. Or like, you know, have, you know, really enjoy it, make it an event. You don't necessarily need to consume a lot to still see a lovely sort of involvement and experience with that because often a lot of times it's not just about the alcohol it's also about the relaxation component it's about taking time out having beautiful deep and meaningful conversations as well so maybe alcohol doesn't have to be the focus we can focus on other things and reduce our alcohol consumption around that to make sure that we're still enjoying ourselves too some wonderful tips and if anybody's curious about um, the more mediterranean style diet i have actually done an entire podcast on that is episode um, 83 with um, dietitian sophie so that's a really great one to listen to Angie and I won't go too much further into it, but it is a wonderful style or pattern of eating that we definitely recommend. And then finally, Angie, when we're talking about perimenopause, um, you did mention quickly that changes in um, sort of our bleeding pattern. So sometimes we bleed for less or sometimes we bleed for a lot longer. I've actually had the experience 
where I've had a few clients in perimenopause who've experienced excessive bleeding. I'm talking, you know, weeks, months at a time. Like I had one client who had bled for close to three months and we had to actually get her started. First, she needed an iron infusion and then we just had to keep going with the iron supplementations. We just couldn't keep up. So where would you see those types of things fitting like iron supplementations or when's a good time to check in with a health professional if our cycle has become, you know, quite irregular from what we're used to? Oh, that's such a great point. And I'm so pleased that you brought it up. So we know that obviously heavy bleeding might very well be a sign of perimenopause as our estrogen and and progesterone starts to decline. And it's really interesting. So what they think it's a result of is the high estrogen levels relative to the progesterone, like I mentioned. So remember, progesterone's declining at more a rapid rate compared to estrogen. So we've got this high level of estrogen. So too much estrogen and menstruation becomes heavy and then coupled with too little progesterone and the uterus lining is actually not controlled. So it becomes a little bit thicker and that then leads to the heavier periods. It's such a fundamental understanding in terms of the physiology. Now that might be the reason why we hit that and that particular experience with perimenopause, but it's also really important to check in with your female physician or someone that knows a lot about female physiology, in which case to identify exactly what is the cause. And I think that is a big factor to realize. So always try to do that first. And then of course, have some blood values where we can actually see the decline in your iron levels. Um, Of course, if we're heavier bleeding, we're likely then to be at increased risk of iron deficiency anemia, exactly what you mentioned, Leanne. And then of course, what do we do with that that value? So once we actually know that from a clinical perspective, then we start to look at, yes, do we need an iron infusion? Um, second to that, do we need supplementation to help us cope with that as we go through? And obviously then at the end of the day, we also need to look at their iron, where it's coming from, from a dietary perspective. So doing an assessment, making sure we can find some iron-containing foods within their diet. Um, and of course, then enhancing that with things such as vitamin C, which are all beautiful ways in which to absorb that iron a little bit better and then reducing a few other things. And it becomes a bit tricky because once we go through perimenopause and we hit menopause, then our calcium needs start to become a little bit more important. But as we are relating to iron, we actually want to have calcium containing foods away from iron containing foods because it inhibits their absorption. And then things such as tannins, so such as tea and coffee, exactly what we mentioned, we want to be having away from consuming those those iron containing foods if we're really struggling with getting iron. And of course, that has a flow on effect to energy levels, fatigue levels, all these types of things. So if you are reportedly feeling like you are a little bit tired. The other thing to realize is particularly if you are active and you are starting to become really hyper puffed after exercise or during exercise more so than usual, that's definitely a sign to say, let's get something happening here and let's go and check in first and foremost with our medical practitioner. And then of course, the referral onto a dietitian after that, because we love that clinical data, right, Leanne? Like we, we want to have that there so we can make informed decisions about their nutrition too. So definitely get it checked out. If you're really in a limbo period where you just don't kind of know what's going on, always important to have a discussion with someone that can actually help you explain why it is that it's occurring and what is the reason behind that as well. Yeah, definitely. And I always like to say, you know, each practitioner is so different. Like, you know, there are great dietitians, there are not so great dietitians, there are great doctors, not so great doctors. So if you feel like you're not being heard or if you feel like your needs aren't being met or if your, you know, doctor just sort of dismisses you, go and find another one, guys. Like that's the whole thing about knowledge and empowerment. Just because somebody tells you something isn't right, but you know that there's something else going on, take that power back and go and find another practitioner who can actually help you or, you know, who might actually understand the female body that little bit better. 100% agree. Absolutely. 
Here's a healthy little break for you from this week's sponsor. On the Goodness Me shop, find thousands of real, wholesome food products that are all nutritionist approved so you'll no longer have to waste time reading the nutritional info at the back of the products. Goodness Me Shop is your one-stop shop for all your healthy pantry essentials that make you feel good and actually taste delicious. With over 3,000 products, whether you're shopping for yourself or your entire family, including the fussiest of kits, you'll find products that everybody will love. See why Goodness Me has over 60,000 customers that rave about them with their exclusive 15% off offer for all my listeners. Head to goodnessme.com.au and use the code Leanne. That's L-E-A. NNE for 15% off. Goodness Me believes that everyone deserves to eat real food that makes them feel good. So let's go explore their range today. Now let's head on back to our podcast. Now let's dive into menopause, Edge. So what is menopause and how does it differ from perimenopause? Yeah, okay. So perimenopause, like we said, was the time preceding menopause, but menopause in of itself is actually the natural end of your menstrual cycle. So we stop having our periods so we can have a little bit of a party, right? Um, so the word menopause as it relates to one specific moment in time is denoted by a 12-month anniversary of your last bleed. So you shouldn't have been having a period for at least 12 months and on that date then we would classify that as menopause itself so once we hit that that is the description of just that event and after which we are in postmenopause or postmenopausal so it really happens probably for most women around the average age of about 50 maybe 51 obviously give or take years after that we understand that perimenopause can last five to ten years so obviously menopause isn't a distinct point but we would definitely have to agree that in terms of a blood value, you can clinically get that tested. Your estrogen and progesterone are flatlined, so they're the lowest that they will be. Obviously, you stop having a period and it's been a consistent amount of time since you haven't had your last period. So yeah, it's definitely a time where we in terms of perimenopause, I feel like the symptoms of perimenopause are often classified as being menopausal symptoms, in which case they kind of are. But once you hit menopause, you're actually really starting to see an ease of those symptoms actually, because we know now that your hormones aren't doing this roller coaster up and down. They're actually going, yes, I'm settled, I'm consistent, and now I'm flatlined. So estrogen is lowest, progesterone is in, in its lowest point, And now I can get a little bit of normality back in my physiology. And in terms of symptoms, are there any ones that are different, some that you might only experience in menopause as, you know, instead of perimenopause or do they basically, they all kind of cross in between? Yeah. So obviously there's going to be a bit of a crossover, which is fine and and everyone's going to be individual. But what I feel like mainly most menopausal women go through and experience in particular is a lot of mood and emotional instability and in response to stress. And I feel like this is a really interesting time of women's lives because often they are doing the juggle. So they have probably on one side aging parents that they're taking care of. They have on the other side maybe teenage kids um, or early adult kids, which they are still reasonably involved in in terms of their lifestyle. Um, They are probably at a really peak in their career. So, you know, they might have stayed in the one career and now are becoming this really quite amazing expert in that career. So there's a lot of pressure with a lot of things. And also I feel like at 50, a lot of women just start to really care about their health probably a little bit more than what we would have in our younger years. Um, And then they start to notice this physiology changing. So they put more eggs in their health basket, thinking that they need to exercise more and reduce their food because they've noticed this belly fat gain. And so I think 
particularly for menopausal women, the stress response to that is really important. And we need to understand that in relation to if they're explaining to us their mood and their emotional stability hasn't been fantastic. And like I said, that might not be physiology, but it's definitely lifestyle factors. So there's definitely some psychosocial stuff happening as well. And then, yeah, definitely the brain fog, but also the belly, the weight gain is really specific. They call this the menopot. So this sort of ability for our bodies to store in the lower half of the midsection Um, and that is as a result of estrogen now being the lowest at the lowest point for sure Um, the other thing as well is obviously we mentioned metabolism so once we're now getting to that point we have an age-related decline in muscle, uh, which is what we term sarcopenia. So this is something that happens once again past the age of 35, but once our estrogen really flatlines, now estrogen has a starring role in bone mineral density, bone health and metabolism and also muscle metabolism. So when we start to then not have the ability of estrogen being there and being anabolic, so helping us to lay down more bone mineral density and put on more muscle, we start to see a really rapid decline in our muscle mass, which then affects our metabolism. And then the pain and inflammation then start to happen as well. So remember low, low levels of estrogen. Now we're experiencing more pain. We are also then possibly less functional because we haven't spent a lot of time maybe looking at some resistance training things to then counteract that. And then our bowel function isn't operating as effectively or as efficiently as it would. And then our total overall ability to absorb and digest food is definitely starting to change. And we have to embrace this because we know that estrogen once it hits flatline is not going back up unless you're on hormone replacement therapy which is something completely different but we're talking about the natural decline the age-related decline that we cannot inevitably stop so we can't slow that down but we can mitigate some of the effects that low estrogen would be having on our system if we look at a few other things in relation to nutrition and exercise Mm. is it all right if we jump in there so how does how can nutrition actually help or hinder us when it comes to menopause as you mentioned Yeah. So this is once again, such an explosion of research and literature, but I think specifically for women at this age point in their lives, first and foremost, we need way more protein than what we would normally recommend for the pre-menopausal woman. Uh, So definitely an increase in protein and increase in the quality of that protein. So what we term a HBV protein or high biologically valuable protein, in which case it is very high in terms of what we term one specific amino acid called leucine, which also helps in things such as brain fog and mitigating any muscle decline. So it really hits a beautiful muscle protein synthesis if we are adding resistance training to our lifestyles in a consistent manner as well. And I think the timing and the distribution of that protein needs to be looked at a little bit more effectively. So making sure that we have protein, the HBV protein, at most of our main meals, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and definitely post-training. So that is an opportunity where our body is more susceptible to taking on board that nutrition. And then, of course, this is all going to help that belly fat gain. So what we're looking at now, this is so crazy, but it's around about 20 to 44% of women report an increase, like a physical increase in visceral abdominal tissue. So it's been measured. It's not in your head. It's not just because you, your pants just feel tighter all of a sudden one morning when you woke up. Um, it is legitimately there because of the lowering of estrogen. Now, as estrogen lowers, we start to increase our insulin resistance. And by doing so, we also need to be very mindful of the types of carbohydrates we eat, the amount that we eat, and also now that our body's ability isn't able to process and digest it as effectively, we really need to make sure that that's being specific to the amount of activity that the woman is doing and obviously where it's coming from. So we can really reduce any sort of big fluxes in terms of blood glucose levels. So we don't want a really high dump of a lot of blood sugar 
and we get that from a lot of processed carbohydrates, refined sugars, uh, those types of things, and when we eat a lot of them. So we definitely want a stable level of blood glucose to help with that insulin resistance. We want to be adding our resistance training in there as well as doing some higher intensity training to help clear that blood glucose out so we can then really counteract a lot of the, the belly fat gain that goes on around the midsection. So protein will help the decline in the muscle, which means more muscle, more metabolically active, more able to function, more able to burn more calories. And I think that's the big key because I think in the 50s, we're so busy attending to everyone's needs left, right, center. By the time we look at what we're doing, we've actually have noticed, or maybe we haven't, but what's happening on a physiological level is that our whole total energy expenditure is declining. Our ability to process food is also declining. So where we might think that we need X amount of energy or calories as we would previous to our menopausal years, we might actually need less. Um, but it's also dependent, obviously, what exercise that you're doing. So we need to really focus on the type of exercise that would be more efficient and more beneficial in terms of you know helping you through this whole phase. So we can be a just a little bit smarter about what we're doing for sure. Mm, and menopause is definitely one of those times to link in with a health professional. It's not one of those times to go to Dr. Google and think, what can I do? It's a time to, if you know, if you've never had a trainer before, it's a great time to get a trainer. If you've never seen a dietitian before, it's a wonderful time to see a dietitian who specializes in things such as menopause. But I'm just going to bring you back quickly, Ange, to when you were talking about HBV protein, because I know that we've done a couple of episodes before and I'm sure that we've explained it, but just for some of our newer listeners, our HPV protein protein or our high biological value protein is different to um, what we call our LBV, so our low biological value. So we want more of those animal-based type products, don't we? But also our things like our eggs and our dairy and our tofu can be quite high value compared to the lower value ones and more, you know, the protein we might get from our vegetables and our quinoas and our legumes, still great sources, but not as readily available for the body. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Yes. And really looking at if you are going to have these types of proteins, they really want to be specifically post-training because that's presenting a beautiful window of opportunity when you have broken down maybe a bit of your muscle fibers down from the training stimulus itself to then be replacing that. It's a really nice opportunity for your body to take on that good HBV protein. So if you're not akin to one being wanting to have too much eggs or fish or dairy around your day-to-day -day diet, please consider it as just maybe prioritizing that around your training and I think the quickness of getting that in is really important so obviously the quality is there but the entry point needs to happen a little bit quicker than what we would probably would have suggested as sports dietitians in the past so within around about 30 minutes and I'm even looking at putting a little bit of protein in before training so with our pre-training nutrition I tend to want to get a little bit of pure HBV or good quality protein in there just prior to training if they can stomach it and digest it. And this is where things such as protein powders come in handy, right? So no, I'm always about whole food first and we've got some beautiful components to that. But we have to remember as well, as we age, we don't need to consume as much food probably, but also our ability to do that is really less as well. So maybe having things such as a protein powder, a whey protein powder available just prior to training in a liquid form might actually help get the entry into those 
beautiful amino acids that might be already present in there to help fuel our workouts and recover as well. So maybe considering something like that too. Mm, and we're really talking about specifically for our menopausal women, aren't we? We don't need our 20-year-olds who are training downing protein shakes before and after gym. It's just not really going to be beneficial. Absolutely not, yes. And, and remember, it comes down to that dietary assessment because this is, I'm just talking generally is what I see with most menopausal women is that they just don't get way near enough protein is what we're recommending. And this guideline is going from you know 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram of body mass per day in terms of the protein recommendations for you know normal women sedentary women but if i'm looking at an active menopausal woman i'm looking at probably around about two grams per kilogram per day of body mass of protein so yeah it's definitely it's double it's over double mm. the recommended guideline and i think if you struggle to eat that then we're definitely going to have to start to think about other options about getting it in and in line with that then protein is really satiating right so sometimes we actually are probably eating too much other discretionary foods that we might want to weed out a little bit as we start to increase the quality of the protein in our diet as well over time so that's a really cool side effect to that and then we also know that protein burns more calories in terms of digestion compared to a fat or a carbohydrate so even by the sheer thermic effect of eating we could actually be increasing our energy expenditure from that aspect um, which would then overall put us in a calorie deficit which is what we would need to lose body fat over the course of a time frame. Um, we can't spot reduce, unfortunately, but hopefully if we're in a deficit, that belly fat gain might actually start to reduce as well. Mm, and I think the key here is, as you mentioned, the active female. So I don't want our listeners to think, you know, two grams of protein per kilo of body weight, that's a lot of protein. It is, but you really need to be active and in, you know, doing some form of, you know, resistance training regularly and continuously. So if you're someone that might just walk once or twice a week, they're not really your protein requirements. You know, if you go and do, you might do a yoga or a Pilates, class that's probably not your protein requirements and she's really referring to the active female you don't have to be an elite athlete but you need to be training doing some form of strength or resistance training regularly to sort of need some of these markers is that correct Ange? A hundred percent. And on that, if we are going to be talking what I wholeheartedly need menopausal women to be doing is looking at resistance training. <laughs> so I have a beautiful passion for exercise and it definitely is so beneficial when we're looking at the risk of osteoporosis, fracture rate, um, falls and fractures in relation to lowering of muscle mass. I want women as a minimum to be doing two resistance training sessions per week, if not ideally three to four sessions per week. Um, there needs to be a bit more of a focus on recovery, as I said, not just nutrition recovery, but also spacing that out over the week and making sure we have enough time to recover. So working with a, a wonderful exercise physiologist, a really good health professional that understands menopausal women and can actually tailor a, a resistance training program designed for them is really key because I think a lot of women are really afraid of weights. They are fearful. They don't tend to want to lift anything too heavy in the sense that they might damage themselves. Um, but we have to remember, we have to remove the fear that's associated with that and really start to get um, women to definitely look at resistance training continuously in their lifestyle and to be able to have that progressive resistance so they can improve and prevent a lot of the stuff that we're talking about with this age-related decline in estrogen. Mm -hmm. And setting yourself up well in your, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s with a good resistance training background is so important. It's never too late. And I used to work as a clinical dietitian so up on the wards in the hospital. And one of my wards was the, um, basically the fracture ward. So I used to work with a lot of neck of femurs, so hip fractures. And you just see the rates of malnutrition and sarcopenia. They have 
very little muscle mass. So yes, muscle mass is great because muscles are metabolically active tissue. We want it, um, you know, it's really helpful for menopause, but it's also helpful functionally as we get older. You are far less at risk of falling and breaking your hip and ending up in a nursing home because you know you can't walk and you're so malnourished or your muscle mass is so degraded by the time you're 70, 80, 90, that if you set yourself up with a good foundation now, a lot of these things can actually be prevented in our elderly population, can't they? Oh, absolutely. And even the as we were talking in terms of nutrition-related factors as well, so exercise and nutrition, if you actually start to implement this well before perimenopause, you might actually find that you cruise through these times in your life. So having the foundations there set before, there's a lot of research to support that if you are doing it beforehand, it could reduce the severity of the symptoms that we experience as well. So prevention, absolutely. I hope that's true for, um, from my behalf anyway. <laughs> Um, and then just really quickly, um, let's talk about calcium because calcium with menopause is so incredibly important. And I know there's such a huge push for a plant forward lifestyle, which I'm all for, but I also do believe I'm somebody who has always eaten and loves dairy. I, I think it's delicious. Um, and I always recommend if my clients are happy to have it, it's a really easy source of calcium. It doesn't have to come from dairy, but your requirements in menopause are so high that if you're not eating dairy, you're really going to struggle to get it in. It's it's 1200 milligrams a day, isn't it? Absolutely. Compared to the thousand milligrams. Huge a day yeah before menopause yeah so it definitely increases another 200 milligrams daily like that is huge right and and so really another serve yeah yeah, and and that is because estrogen is at the lowest point so remember what i said about estrogen being so such a starring role in bone metabolism once we lose that estrogen we really are relying quite heavily on obtaining these nutrients through our diet um in combination with calcium is also a heightened vitamin d need so the increase from 600 international units a day upwards of 800 international units a day. So anything that we're going to be looking at that has calcium and vitamin D containing nutrients in there in relation to foods is going to really help this scenario. And as you mentioned, Leanne, obviously dairy is a wonderful form and source of, of getting that those nutrients in. Salmon, salmon bones in particular, the edible salmon bones. And as you mentioned, like the green leafy veggies are definitely an element of calcium in there, but um, they may not be the highest forms of getting that in. But yeah, so if we can eat our our salmon or our oily fishes with the bones in it, that will give us a fantastic calcium bang for our buck. And I know you just mentioned to me that you were looking at those tuna packs that have the bones ground up in them, uh, which have an exorbitant amount of calcium in them, am I right? Yeah, there's a new brand of John West Calcium Fortified Tuna Guys. They have, oh, I think it's over 800 milligrams in a little tin of tuna. So I'm not someone, I was saying to Edge, I don't like sardines and I don't like tin salmon. I love a salmon fillet, but I don't like tin salmon. So for me, a really convenient lunch option if I'm trying to get more um, calcium in, which I am in the third trimester of my pregnancy, is actually to have those really high John West Calcium Fortified Tuna Tins. And another great product that's just hit the market in Australia anyway and is the Yopros, the, the ones with the, the extra 20 grams in there. Um, so they actually, compared to the standard ones, they have about 400 plus milligrams, which again is huge. So if you're somebody that doesn't mind tuna or doesn't mind dairy and you're, you know, you're struggling to eat calcium as part of your diet overall or don't want to take supplementation, those two sort of functional-based products can be really, really helpful. And fortified tofu is another one which can actually be quite high in, um, in calcium as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and isn't it wonderful that we are finding food products that have that fortification in them. They even um, some milks, of course. You can look at milks and having extra calcium and vitamin D contained in those products. Um, a lot of cereals as well contain that. Mm, cereals, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's definitely 
products and food products out there that we can um, accrue that really quite quickly. But of course, you know, you've got to sit with your dietitian and, and figure out what number one, what your preference is to eating those types of foods are and where we can get it from as well. And, and just giving our, giving you an assumption of how much exactly is that you are eating, because I think a lot of people don't realize where they're going to get their calcium from if like you said we're not having a lot of those foods um, and then you'd be really shocked to to realize that we are actually probably not even hitting that thousand milligrams a day mm. let alone 1200 when we hit menopause for sure yeah it's crazy like and if you're a menopausal woman right now or even perimenopause you know it's sort of three, four serves of dairy a day. And if you don't eat dairy, it's probably six to eight serves of a non-dairy form of sort of calcium that you really need to get in. So it's one of those nutrients that we kind of gloss over. Like some people go, oh, you know, I know I need a little bit more, but it'll be fine. But ladies, listen up. It won't be fine because if your body's not getting enough calcium, it will pull it from your bones and from your teeth. And this is where we end up with osteoporosis. And by the time we have osteoporosis, it is too late, ladies. So it's really something that if you have one takeaway from this podcast, go and get your calcium intake assessed by a professional such as a nutritionist or a dietitian. The easiest thing for you to do is take supplementation, take supplementation. I'm always, you know, Angie and I, we have the same philosophy, that food first, but this is such an important critical area that if you can't get in your intake of calcium through food, you absolutely need to do it through a supplemented form because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna pay the risk, you know, in a couple of years' time or in, you know, five, ten years time. By the time you're you're near your osteoporotic, it's kind of too late, isn't it? Yeah, like and bone is malleable. Like it is dynamic. Like it does actually change. And as you mentioned, we will take calcium from our bones to support a deficiency within our diet for sure and then on top of that so another reason to do resistance training i know i'm harping on about that but is it's providing a stimulus to lay down more bone so you know because bone is dynamic it can be affected from the foods that we eat from our calcium and vitamin d supplementation and also coupled with that is looking at the resistance training that we would then require to accrue and lay down more bone as well so winning combination i think the only thing that we would reduce is our iron. So, you know, we spoke about obviously perimenopause being that it's probably maybe an increased iron needs if you do experience heavy bleeding in that that tumultuous time of hormone fluctuation. But if we're looking at actual menopause and your iron needs after menopause, when you've stopped menstruating, it goes down. So it goes down from 18 milligrams a day normally. You know, obviously, Leanne, you would know in pregnancy, it went up, it goes up to 27 milligrams, and then it comes back down to eight milligrams a day in menopause. So at least we can go, look, if we need to increase calcium, then we could also be okay with reducing iron as well so you might not i think it's definitely the food group specific focus is what we really need to be turning our priority to and working with a professional is definitely going to help you with that yeah i couldn't agree more and then to wrap up this podcast Angie, you've given us so much wisdom today i couldn't thank you enough but if there's one thing that you might recommend for every woman either before she hits menopause or if she's even there right now what would that one thing be if there was one big takeaway for our ladies listening today or even some of our males listening that they might want to pass on to their their wives their sisters sisters, their friends, their, even their mums, what would that one big takeaway be for all of our females? Oh, okay. I've got three, <laughs> but they all Hit sort of, kind of merge. They merge in together. First and foremost, understand your body. I cannot be so specific to this. It really needs to be an appreciation of what your body goes through as a woman. Um, and also for the guys out there, understanding that the females in your lives are just amazing, but they do go through changes in terms of hormonal changes that make them different to men. And that we, once we understand that, then we can embrace our changes and really work with our bodies as opposed to refusing the change because I think the cultural 
stigmas associated with menopause is that it's the end of the world and, you know, it's the worst part of my life and, you know, it's so terrible and we're just crazy and no one wants to be around us. Absolutely not. If we really embrace that change and we appreciate that our body is so bloody intelligent, you know, the the stuff and the changes that come with age is just completely wonderful. It allows us to do so many different things, but I think we need to age gracefully and also just embrace the possibility that comes out of going through these times. And they are transient. They don't always last. You know, there's always going to be days where you're going to feel worse than other days, but know that in the whole continuum of our lives, as long as we just appreciate each moment for what it's worth, it's the best thing that we can do. And just don't delay is really what I want to leave everyone with today is don't delay and think that this isn't your problem or, you know, you're you're going to deal with that when you get there. Um, Starting, as we said, and we've said this the whole way through the podcast, which is so wonderful, starting to think about these things now in our 30s is really going to help to set us up the best possible way to get through perimenopause and then to embrace the menopausal lifestyle. And then, of course, all the associated wonderful things that go with that as well. Amazing. And I'm sure that our listeners at home are going, oh my God, I love Angie. I need to book in with her right now. So please tell us, Angie, where can we find you in terms of your website? Where can we follow in your socials? And what do you offer in terms of, you know, consultations and that sort of thing, knowing that you're Brisbane based, but I know that you also do a lot of online consults as well. Yeah, look, absolutely. So uh, distance is never going to be uh, a detriment. I'm definitely online if that needs to happen. So I work with women one-on-one if they would require that. Um, and I am also working on a wonderful active women over 35 online program so a group program that's coming up in the pipeline so that's really really exciting so if you want to stay updated with that and what's coming or if you want to work with me one-on-one you can just head over to my website which is just angeliqueclark.com.au pop a little inquiry in there and there's also an application form if you're looking at the one-on-one stuff in terms of coaching everyone needs to jump on and follow my instagram so i really really make a huge effort as leanne would have known over the years i haven't been so fantastic at this but now I've gotten so much better in providing useful information as it relates to that active woman that's over 35. So everyone, if you wanted to just follow along with me on Instagram, I'm at Angelique Clark underscore nutrition. Amazing. Thank you again so much for your time today and all of your wisdom. I cannot thank you enough on behalf of myself, but also all of the listeners. So guys go and jump over and give Angie's social pages a follow and, um, and reach out to her. She's, she's very lovely. She's always happy to help and, and answer questions and that sort of thing. So go give her a follow, engage with some of her posts and let us know how much you enjoyed this podcast today. Thank you so much again, Angie. Oh, thanks Leanna. I had an absolute blast.